What's up, everybody? This is Stick to Football Bleacher Reports, college football, NFL, and NFL Draft Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Joined, as always, on Friday by Mello and Connor Rogers. And yeah, I opened the show by cracking a, a cold one because I've actually had a long day, so I'm going to drink it. Well, it's summertime. And, and it's summer. what people should do if you're not working or doing anything else. Right. And plus, that's what everybody on Twitter is doing, too. Right, yeah. The Sticky Chug Challenge has gone viral. We appreciate it. Uh, Connor, Mello, we're going to have a fun show tonight, guys, covering a lot of what's going on in the NFL right now. Connor's Jets. Buddy, you guys are making hires. Do you have a job yet with the front office? I do not have a job, so you guys are stuck with me, which reminds me, have either of you been challenged to do the Sticky Chug Challenge yet? I haven't. I actually, as soon as I I, saw that it was a thing, I thought uh, my name was coming. Yeah, Ant the Oreo got me. So that video will be coming sometime this weekend. It was uh, it was bound to happen, but I'm sure somebody will get you guys soon. That's my open challenge to the stickies: get Matt and Mello to do the sticky chug challenge. <laughs> I would hire someone to edit the video so I actually look good doing it. Yeah, um, can you speed it up to yeah, like one and a half off? speed? Like, oh my phone! I've dropped my phone. There's two videos, and now I'm done. Uh, I'll pull my homes and do it out of the can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just teasing Pat. He texted me about that last time I mentioned it. So let's get back on track. A good show tonight. I sat down with Duke Mannyweather, who is an O-line guru. He actually runs O-line Masterminds, which is a like a summit for offensive linemen. We talked for almost 30 minutes about what he's doing working with all these NFL offensive linemen and his background. But guys, we're also going to do a fun top five tonight because we're doing the top trios, the top triplets of all time. I took all time. Mello took future. Connor took the present. It's going to be a lot of fun. But let's start with what's happening around the NFL. And we're going to start here, not with who the Texans are talking to, who the Jets are talking to. We're going to start with Baker Mayfield versus Duke Johnson in Cleveland because we've spent a decent amount of time on this. Obviously, Mello hates Baker. so and, But there is the intrigue that this is a like a super team right now. They're like the Warriors of football with all the people they brought in. And guys, Mike Silver drops a bomb on Thursday afternoon and says that veterans in the Browns locker room were not happy with how Baker handled it. And I, I will say, this is something I've heard about before, not with this situation, where veterans especially will say, you do not talk about another man's money. And that's basically what happened here. I mean, everybody saw this coming, I feel like. If you know anything about football and the culture of that locker room, you can't call somebody out, especially in this situation where Duke Johnson's going to be buried on the depth chart and be the third running back. He's obviously going to come in and do his job with the Cleveland Browns. So I'm glad that this report comes out and that guys like Jarvis Landry are stepping up and they still have control of this locker room. I think Baker has a lot of maturing to do before he becomes this elite quarterback that he's going to. But for right now, he does have some growing up to deal with these are not you know 22 year old kids that he's dealing with these are 30 year old men and this is their career it's their profession that's how they provide for their families it's not just come in do your job or you get cut and lose your scholarship and of course you got duke there he's been there a couple years now there's people in the locker room that he has long-term relationships with across the board and like you guys just said this ain't the big 12 anymore man this is where guys are earning paychecks for themselves for their families for their kids kids so I think Baker hopefully took something away from this that, sure, we know him as this brash, confident leader that that really believes in what the Browns are doing, but at the end of the day, there's a line you draw in the sand, and if you think a guy is not on board with the team, 
no matter how you feel, you keep that in-house. That's how it goes, man. You don't go out there to the media and say all those things. And I understand Duke had a lot to say as well, but it's a personal matter. And I think the quarterback is the guy that keeps everything really, really tightly bound in there. So hopefully he learns from this. It's interesting. There's a lot of hype around the Browns. They have a super talented roster, a a first-time head coach, and it, it the focus on them around the NFL is greater than ever. So I, I can't wait to see how this thing plays out. Yeah, and I, I think expanding on that is something that you both touched on, is that being the quarterback means you're the leader. That doesn't always mean you have to say something. I, I think sometimes it means not saying something, uh, uh, you know, of knowing when to keep things quiet, when to address things, when to use the media to your advantage, when to not use the media, when to keep things behind closed doors. Uh, I, I think that is just an area where Baker has to mature. Everyone I've ever talked to swears the guy is an exceptional leader. Uh, we talked to Nick Chubb, and he said that, you know, like the guy, he's the energy of the whole team. But I, I do think you have to be smart about when to use the media to send a message, especially in a locker room where since John Dorsey came in, think about how new this team is. There's not a lot of continuity there. Like even people like Jarvis Landry that you would say is a leader. This will be his second year with the Cleveland Browns. So you don't have those guys, maybe a couple on defense, who've been there for a really long time and have the, their finger on the pulse of the locker room where they can you know, snuff out fires here and there. Look at what happened in Pittsburgh. I think you have to be very, very careful when you get a quarterback versus players situation happening. Hopefully the Browns are smart enough to squash this before it runs away. Hopefully they are, but I'm, Freddie Kitchens didn't do anything to help the situation. He pretty much echoed what Baker said, or maybe it was vice versa. I mean, they I think they're pretty much the same guy, so it is going to be interesting. It's too bad that we don't get to see them on hard knocks, that it is going to be the Raiders, which will still Not be upset. good, but I, I think that the Browns still would have been just electric television. And one more thing here in Cleveland from Mike Silver. This one I found even more fascinating is that apparently – Todd Munkin, their first-year offensive coordinator to work under Freddie Kitchens, is struggling. The transition there has been rough. It sounds like Kitchens is taking more responsibility already over the offense. I think, Matt, you could speak to this more, somebody that's covered the NFL longer. But in my first glance, in June, isn't this kind of unusual? I think it's unusual, and I love Mike Silver. Um, I've known him for a long time. I'm not in any way trying to refute anything he's saying. I know that Silver is one of the most plugged-in people in the league. So if he reports this, he's hearing it from not just one person, but from a lot of people who he really trusts. So, But I will say this. I think June is a little early to hit the panic button because Freddie Kitchens is also a first-time head coach. And he's also really a first-time offensive coordinator. You know, He got elevated last year you know, to a, an interim head coaching job. He called plays. They had a ton of success. But he's still trying to figure out what his offense is going to look like in the NFL. He's not running Hugh Jackson's offense anymore. So I don't think it's unusual for for Freddie to come in and say, all right, guys, bring me your ideas, and then I'll put this together, and this is going to be our offense. Now, if Munkin's struggling with you know, the terminology, or if he's struggling with getting whatever communicated to Baker, to whatever he's responsible for, because he won't be calling plays, uh, I think that's a, an, an eye-opening issue. And you do hear about this, where a guy can be, and this happens with coaches and front office people, guy can be a hot name. You know, like, Mello could be the hottest name in scouting right now. People be like, that dude it can is. fucking scout, right? Like, he's the man. But he might not be mentally ready to handle a general manager job. It might be overwhelming for him to have to micromanage, to manage people, to have to deal with the small details that go into being a GM. 
I think the same thing could be true of a head coach, of an offensive coordinator. So we'll see, I think, in the preseason if Munkin continues to struggle. I am confident that Freddie Kitchens will not be quiet about it. I mean, we will know. If this offense struggles in the first four weeks, I think he will completely take over play calling everything. He will be the offensive coordinator. I don't see him sitting around and waiting for this thing to get corrected. I Connor, are you mostly surprised though? I I know you've talked before about Munkin was the dude you wanted for the Jets. What is like do you look at this and you're like, "Oh god, th- thankfully we hired the crazy guy in Adam Gase instead." But I'm not re- yeah, I'm not even sure what to make of this because I think Munkin is someone that's known as an exceptional play caller and somebody that's phenomenal with the players in the locker room and the thing that really confuses me here is that he was demoted last year, even though the offense was you know, putting up numbers at times. So you have to wonder, is this him struggling to mesh with other coaches? And let's be fair, like you said, Matt, this is Freddie Kitchens almost learning how to be a head coach on the fly because he was the running backs guy last year. And then when Greg Williams took over the team, Freddie basically took over the entire offense there. Sure, Greg had the interim label, but he was really running the defense while, (laughs) you know, Freddie was, yeah, Freddie was calling plays and doing all that. So maybe it's one of those areas where, you know, Freddie still wants control. I know Adam Gase has come in to coach the Jets, but He's their offensive coordinator. I mean, that that's what it comes down to. He runs the offense. Maybe Freddie, as a head coach, feels the same way, and Munkin just wanted a lot of power. It's going to be something interesting to keep an eye on. Like you said, let's not hit the panic button. It's not a big deal, but it's definitely something that at least caught my eye right now yeah, for someone it, that was viewed as a head coaching candidate. It reminds me of John D. Philippe. Uh, he was viewed as a head coaching candidate, goes to the Vikings, and you kind of immediately started hearing, like, oh, this was not what we thought we were getting. Like you, and Because sometimes the coaching you do, you just grab a hot name. And you're like, well, this guy was a, a getting head coach talk. We got Let's bring him in. This will make the owner happy and make everybody happy. And these guys have probably never worked together before, Freddie Kitchens and Todd Monken. So I think that's some of it, too, is figuring out the, the relationship there. Because, like, I mean, I've never met a coach who's not an alpha Every coach thinks they're the baddest dude in the room. So I think they also got to figure that out. Let's talk about Connor's Jets because this is important news. If you listen to the show, the midweek show, we talked a lot about future GMs and guys who would be good fits. And a lot of these names were mentioned there. Andy Weidel, Ian Cunningham, Champ Kelly. Well, it comes out Thursday afternoon that Andy is being promoted in Philly, so he can't leave. He's the new uh, director of player personnel, I believe, is, is the, our VP of player personnel. Ian Cunningham also getting a nice little bump, so he's not leaving Philly. I think, Connor, this leaves Champ Kelly as most likely to be uh, Joe Douglas's right-hand guy for your Jets. I would be there with you all the way. I think when it comes down to it, you know, Weidel was somebody that was viewed as Douglas's right-hand man in Philly. Sure, Douglas would have loved to bring one of him or Cunningham over. How he did the right thing and, and you know, obviously wrote out some checks there and said, listen, you guys are all getting promotions. With promotions come contract extensions and a lot more money to keep those guys in-house. Now, what I will say is here... I don't think Kelly is a consolation kind of hire. I think he's been on Douglas's radar. They brought him in for a GM interview to get to know him and clearly really liked him. And once again, him and Douglas and Gase, they know each other. So this is a great balance if they make this hire. And if they do, Kelly would be brought in as the assistant general manager because all of Kelly's experiences are really on the pro side of things. That's the advanced scouting. That's free agency, trades, cuts all of those things that affect pro personnel while Douglas has really had his hands in the college side so if you're looking for a one-two punch that blends well together 
I, I'm a big fan of the potential Douglas and Kelly duo. And I think it still actually keeps the door open for Todd McShay if he wants in. And Sure, as a consultant, right? right? Like a senior scouting consultant. Right. That's a popular job across the league yeah. now. So I, I don't think that door is completely closed if he wants it open. Before we take our first break, I want to put you guys on the spot. We've talked a lot about Tailgate Tour 2019. I'm very excited. We are already talking to people in Austin, Texas about the kickoff LSU at Texas, where we're going to be tailgating, what we're going to be doing. And I have decided, um, with no approval at all, I've just decided that I'm going to wear a jersey at every one of these stops. So, Jesse, if you don't like that idea, sorry. Uh, but I'm going to wear a jersey at every stop. Connor, what will your tailgate tour shtick be? Have you have you picked one? I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I think I'm going with the bandanas. I'm a man that when I'm not in the office, I wear headbands and bandanas. I did it before Baker Mayfield, so before anyone says that, fuck yourself. Um, oh, nice. And... And I think for the tailgate tour, I would like to wear the home teams. So that means week one, Longhorns, hook them, baby. Uh, I'll, wear, I'll wear headbands each week. And I think for the Jets one, I mean, we all got to be rocking some kind of jerseys along the way. Maybe we'll get a little creative for London. I don't want to give away anything there yet. I'm going to wear the uh, the guard thing. Uh, before we get to yours, Mello, Connor, I got to go back there. Because I did a, a podcast this week, and they told me you said you were rooting for LSU when we go there. Yeah, I was so, like, no, he's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, no, no, what I said I, was, I, once you got to Austin and saw the energy, yes. because you've never been there, it was like, I promise you he will be rooting for Texas by halftime. Yeah, I'll never root for the away team on the tailgate tour. I think that's what makes it so fun is that we're there to party and hang out with the fans. And I mean, I wore a TCU polo in TCU last year and like that hell yeah it was a great one uh the the Walmart special but (laughs) man when when you look at LSU I will be rooting for Grant Delpit for defense for Heisman that's who I will be rooting for if he gets an interception I'll be like, all right, pretty sweet, but I need Texas to win that Sam game. Sam Ellinger doesn't throw picks, so we should be okay. Uh, uh, just don't, no, because he just runs about it. <laughs> Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> Jinxing it. He's going to throw three interceptions now. Well, I hope I unjinxed it. What will your shtick be, Mel? I don't. I didn't think of one. I don't know. I don't. I'll have a cold beer in my hand every time you see me. <laughs> there we go. There it is. Like uh, somebody's got to get shit faced, and I feel like I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> is that your role this year? I think that's a good. Role I think for so. You. I, you I'm know, honestly, the torch. I didn't get crazy on the tailgate tour last year, so I, I think 2019 is my year. Well, all right. That, those are the shticks. If you guys have any ideas, tweet them at us, at Circuit Football. Let's take a break. When we come back, more news from around the NFL. The Houston Texans this week, guys, got accused of tampering with Nick Casario. And I'm really – I love the strategy here because I think – and I, I feel bad because I'm probably going to make Connor cry. But do you remember when – uh, the Patriots wanted Bill Belichick, but the Jets had like the ownership to him because he was almost the head coach. And so they said, you guys tampered. So the Patriots then had to trade for Bill Belichick. I don't know if a lot of our younger listeners know that. I do not yeah, remember. This yeah, this is a fact. Wikipedia. It, the Patriots actually traded a first-round pick for Bill Belichick. That worked out. Let's talk about that. I believe that on a smaller scale, the Patriots are doing the same thing to the Houston Texans right now. They're saying, we know Nick Casario wants to go there. We know that he's buddies with Bill O'Brien. He wants Deshaun Watson. He wants the whole thing. If you want him, you're going to have to give us something. Probably not a first-round pick, but I think this is just more evil genius level maneuvering from Bill Belichick. I don't even know if you could call it evil genius. It's just kind of being a douchebag to somebody that's (laughs) trying to get a different, better job and then you're like, nope, we're going to milk you for everything you're worth. I don't know. But there is something to do with Houston and constantly tampering with other teams. Oh, this is 
absolutely called being a douchebag. I mean, <laughs> everybody in the NFL tampers. Like, yeah. when when our careers are done with this, we could tell stories of tampering that would blow your minds. Oh, man. So, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. There's been a lot in the last couple of years that we know of firsthand that would blow your minds. How do you think these contracts get done, like, in the first 35 seconds of the Windows opening of all of these things? So... This is ridiculous. I guess good for New England if they get a draft pick out of this. I would imagine the Texans and Nick Casario specifically are not thrilled by this. I think this is where I'm a little hung up, and whatever. You can call me a hater. I think it's a little fucked up to do to Nick Casario when it comes down to it right now. Because you're essentially, I mean, you know, causing a speed bump in the process of the guy becoming a GM. In yeah. my opinion, I agree with you. I, I don't. I think right? they're blocking him, and usually you want they to. Are. As long as your guy's going for a promotion, you encourage that. You try to help them out, and you try to help out kind of your football family there. And the Patriots don't seem to be doing that right now. Yeah, I, I think it's a little ridiculous, but I mean, good for New England if they get a draft pick out of this. I'll admit that. It good for them. I think the Texans have kind of put themselves in a little bit of a bind at the moment. I still think it's going to get done. I, I don't think I do it, there will be any holdup. Nick Casario is going to be the GM there, I would believe. I don't think it will cost a first or second round pick. But at the end of the day, New England, they, they mastered this process, it feels like, of always squeezing every last drop out of situations. I want to throw a scenario at you guys. I I was on the phone today. Uh, wrote, I was writing an article. I had to call someone in the NFL to bounce an idea off them. And I was like, hey. Here's what should happen. The Patriots should send Nick Casario to Houston with a second-round pick and get Jadavian Clowney back. Ooh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's not a terrible – I don't think it's the worst idea I've ever had. It's, it's No, it's definitely not the worst idea you've ever had. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the player for, like, front office role, even if it is GM, is an interesting The Browns trade traded scenario. a second-round pick for Brock Osweiler. Yeah. You know, I mean, right, so. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could work, and he hasn't reported to camp, so he's probably not going to be there. And, I mean, I guess part of the problem is that there's no GM to negotiate his deal. Uh, but I don't know if you if if you're the Texans if you want to give that pass rush weapon to the Patriots. Probably not. That's that's a good point. Uh, all right, let's move on. The Kansas City Chiefs have been busy with extensions, just not to Chris Jones. So if you watch the combine, doesn't need one. Mitchell Schwartz signed. Uh, a one-year extension that keeps him through 2021, and the kicker Harrison Bucker got a massive five deal. years. I got paid for paid. a kicker. When I saw the numbers, like he got 24 and a half million dollars. Yeah. Good for him. At first, that's all I saw. I didn't see the years. I'm like, why the hell did they sign a kicker? Oh, they signed him for forever. Yeah, okay, that's a ten-year that, that makes more sense. Okay. Uh, I am happy for for Mitchell Schwartz because. I honestly think it's either him or Lane Johnson as the best right tackle in football. So keeping him in Kansas City, keeping uh, Pat Mahomes' face clean because that right tackle position is incredibly important when you have Von Miller uh, in that division coming at you. And now you had Cleveland Furl with the Raiders. Uh, It's very, very important. And I I do think uh, the reason I want to talk about this, I think Mitchell Schwartz is incredibly underrated. I don't just say that because uh, his brother and I are friends or because he and I both like barbecue. I think he's really a good player that doesn't get enough love for stopping the Von Millers. And back when Khalil Mack was in that division. Look at the Chargers and the guys that they have. I mean, the key pass rushers in the NFL are all in the AFC West, it seems like. So I'm, I'm with you. I do think he's underrated at least 
when you talk about nationally, and I think a lot of the problem is that he's a right tackle and that for some reason we're still not valuing those guys quite like we are the left tackle position. But I think he's he's probably the best right tackle in the league. If not one, he's easily in the top three. I'm with you all the way here. I mean, you got a young franchise quarterback back there that just had an all-world season. Keep the guy that has done the best job protecting him, and he did a great job protecting Alex Smith before that. So, once again, yeah, he really is underrated. You look at all the pass rushers that he has to face, and those guys on the Chargers are good. I mean, the list goes on and on, and maybe it's because he quietly does it, but he doesn't get enough love for what that Chiefs offense has done year after year. A new segment on Sticks Football might be where we just highlight an underrated player, like somebody that needs more love. You guys think of a catchy name. We'll start doing it. Speaking of needing more love, I saw this news come across Twitter, and I could not believe that this had not happened already. But the Tennessee Titans finally retired the number 9 jersey for Steve McNair and number 27 for Eddie George. And I'm, I'm glad they did this. I don't know what took so long. I don't either. I'm shocked by this. Should, I was, well, I'm shocked because I was like, wait, what? It's been like, 10 years. Yeah. Right. It should have I been know. two years after they both finished their career or their time with the Titans. As soon as Steve McNair retired, like, he should have been in the ring of honor. Nine shouldn't have been an option for anybody. I, I'm with you. I don't know what took so long. Eddie George, I think when you think of the Titans, was like he was the guy when they moved yeah. to Nashville, when they became the Titans. He was the face of that franchise along with Steve McNair. So they obviously should have been retired a long time ago. But I'm glad that it finally happened for him. It is top five time. This one is a fun one. I always love when we can hit tiers on top fives. So the top five, and this was a an iTunes suggestion, the top triplets. That means quarterback, running back, wide receiver. I may have put a tight end on mine, too. I don't follow directions well. I got all time because I'm old. Connor got present, and Mello got future, college is the trios because Mello loves college football. So, Mello, why don't you start us off with uh, looking into the college football season and who the top triplets will be? And for me, with the top triplets, it's obviously, you know, running back, receiver, quarterback. I think there are a couple teams on there that have tight ends. But for me, you have to start with Clemson. I think Clemson and the guys that they have there, I went with Trevor Lawrence, ETN and I went with Justin Ross. I you could have picked T Higgins, but I went with Ross because I think he's going to establish himself as that true number one receiver in this offense. You got Connor's guy ETN who ran for twenty four touchdowns last year and did not get talked about because of guys like Trevor Lawrence, who's the best quarterback we've ever seen, and two great receivers. So you pair him up with his sixteen hundred yards, they probably would have lost the game if it weren't for Travis ETN, but they didn't. Sorry, Travis. Him in the backfield, he's probably going to be the number one running back in the draft this year. Two great receivers. I think they have to be number one overall when we're talking trios. And I'm going to do mine actually by conference. So I picked one for each conference of the Power Five. With the ACC, it's got to be Clemson. SEC, no duh. It's Alabama. And I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised with what they have in the backfield this year. Even though maybe not a lot of people know him, Najee Harris, this dude averaged six yards per carry last year. He's an absolute beast in the backfield. They're not going to miss a beat with Josh Jacobs and Damian Harris. They're going to have the same offense with Tua, and Jerry Judy looks like one of the best receiving prospects we've ever seen. So they're going to be my trio for the SEC. Moving on is where it starts to get a little bit tricky. The the Big 12, I still went with Oklahoma, even though they're losing. It has to be Oklahoma. 
and I say this as probably the person who hates Oklahoma the most in the world. But returning, they get Jalen Hurts, who has won a national championship. They have CeeDee Lamb, who still looks like one of the best receivers in the nation. And then uh, last year, Kennedy Brooks really established himself as a great runner. Rushed for over 1,000 yards, 12 touchdowns. If Texas had a running back, and I love Ingram, who is a freshman. That's improving him. If he did more last year, I think if he would have broken that 1,000-yard barrier, I think that they could have been up there. But I still think that CeeDee Lamb at receiver is better than Colin Johnson. I think Brooks, as of last year, was better than Ingram. And you put Jalen Hurts with Lincoln Riley, I, I'm not sleeping on this. I'm not going to even pretend like I'm looking at Jalen Hurts like he was at Alabama. This is going to be a whole new guy with a great system around him. I know they lost some offensive linemen, but we're not talking about them. So for the Big 12, I'm going Oklahoma. Pac-12, Oregon. Justin Herbert's going to get a lot of attention. I really like the receiver that they got out of the transfer portal. Jawan Johnson out of Penn State. I think he's a big target. He's going to help Justin Herbert tremendously. And a sleeper is that they have two freshman running backs. Uh, one of them rushed for 1,000 yards. The other rushed for 700. I didn't know which one to pick. You have Verdell and you have Die. Both of them are going to be very good. So they have to be a part of that trio, at least. It's kind of like Clemson having the two great receivers. Oregon has two very good, talented running backs to go along with possibly the best quarterback in the nation already. So they have to be the Big 12. Let's try it again. Pack 12 <laughs> there you go. conference. And the Big 10... I'm going with Ohio State. I didn't really want to put Justin Fields and Ohio State on here because he's unproven as well. But you look at J.K. Dobbins. He's going to carry the rock for them. He's going to be very good this year. I know Ohio State lost a lot of receivers. They still have a very good one coming back in K.J. Hill. He caught 70 balls last year in their pass-happy offense. I think he's still going to be very good. So they get the nod in the Big Ten. Bonus, non-power five, If you're not familiar with North Texas yet, you need to be. Because if you're a college football fan, Mason Fine is a very good quarterback. He might not be your prototypical NFL quarterback, but they have a lot of talent there coming back on that team. They are a very good trio that's going to be underrated because you think North Texas, what the hell, do they even still play football there? They do, and they're still very good at it. Man. That's uh that's a deep cut and right? I love it. They are Toledo this year essentially <laughs> right. we get from North Texas. <laughs> right. That was that was fun man and I like that you started out with Clemson cuz I'm going to start out with the NFL's version of their Clemson triplets. Number 1, the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees, Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara. I, I don't see how someone can make an argument for a different group of triplets here. And keep in mind this is quarterback, running back, wide receiver so there's a lot of great quarterback running back duos there's a lot of great quarterback two wide receivers or tight end duos that's not the case here number two for me the chargers that might surprise some people but philip rivers keenan allen and melvin gordon i mean you look at what keenan allen has done recently since he's been able to stay healthy i mean you're talking about about 1200 yards last year 1400 yards the year before that Averages around 100 catches a year in those last two years. He's the real deal, and a guy that we don't talk about as a number one wide receiver enough. You know about Phillip Rivers. You know about Melvin Gordon. This is a special trio right here. Number three, this group is really interesting because it used to it used to be number one with Big Ben, 
AB, and Le'Veon. Now they're number three, which is pretty damn impressive. You could do it with a couple mid-round to late-round picks. Big Ben, Juju, James Conner. The production last year does not lie with this group. They have to be in the top three. I know Big Ben has... Not exactly been top three, top five quarterback Big Ben over the last year, but he's still pretty damn good. Juju and James Conner have filled in wonderfully over there. Number four, this one is going to be really interesting this year because they can fall off a cliff or they can continue to keep climbing. The Rams, Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, Brandon Cooks. Now, numbers-wise, this trio was phenomenal last year. I don't know what Todd Gurley we're going to get this year, but this is the right now, today, post-2018 season. You could even make an argument that when he's healthy on the field, Cooper Cup can be the wide receiver in this trio. Obviously, Robert Woods led the team in receiving yards last year, but this is definitely a fun one coached by Sean McVay. Number five, me and Matt have said this on the midweek show week after week, the Houston Texans. It doesn't matter who's playing running back. They got Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, Good Lord, those two put up numbers after numbers. And Lamar Miller quietly hovers around 1,000 yards. So I didn't want this group to get lost in the shuffle. And I picked a bonus one. It's the we haven't seen them yet, so they couldn't be in the top five. But it wouldn't shock me if they're a top two group after this year. That's the Cleveland Browns, Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham, and our guy Nick Chubb. And maybe Kareem Hunt. You know, like and, they, maybe, and maybe right? Kareem Hunt. I mean, good yeah. Lord. They're, they're, good they Lord. They go so, so deep. And I'll say this, there was a couple that I wanted on there purely out of, you know, the one-two punch, like the Chiefs. Obviously, Mm -hmm. Mahomes and Tyreek Hill, they just don't have a guy as the running back right now that you could put in the trio yet, and maybe somebody will break out for them this year. The Bears were an interesting one. The Panthers don't have the wide receiver, but Cam and McCaffrey have been phenomenal. So the Patriots, it's tough. Brady's phenomenal. Edelman's great. It feels like, and I know Sony had a nice rookie year, but they just plug and play running backs year after year. So it, it was. This was. T- I had a really challenging time with this. I deleted and rewrote in names over and over again. <laughs> well, speaking of, like I said, this is probably the hardest top five that I've ever done on this show, and I, I'm going to forget someone, and somebody's going to get mad at me. So I'm just hope oh, that my DMs are open. Tweet me all the hate you want. So number one triplet of all time. I went with the Dallas Cowboys, and I don't know if that's popular or not. I'm going to give you guys a chance to retort on these if you want. Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin. Three Hall of Famers. They won a ton of rings together. Emmitt is the... uh, That's weird to say and not be talking about my kid. (laughs) Emmitt Smith is the all-time leading rusher in the NFL. Troy Aikman, were it not for some concussions, would have... He already had a great career. Michael Irvin, was it not for cocaine, would have had even a greater career. I I think they're the best trio of all time. Do you want... Anyone disagree? I... I'm surprised to hear you say that, but I actually think that I do agree with you. And I'm sure that number two on your list is the 49ers, but they never had a great running back. So I, I think you can't really say that as you went I mean, over there in pain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm upset over here. We'll get to Sorry, that. Ricky Waters. <laughs> number two on my list is the Buffalo Bills. Oh, okay. The team that couldn't beat there the Cowboys go. or the Niners. But again, three Hall of Famers, Jim Kelly, Darwin Thomas, Andre Reid. Great players, all amazing. Andre Reed with that high and tight, that was that was fabulous. Number three, and this is where I'm going to take my watch off and fight you, so this will be my last podcast ever. The 49ers are at number three. Joe Montana, Roger Craig, 
and Jerry Rice. He was the first running back to ever catch 1,000 or 100 passes in a season. He changed the NFL. He was Marshall Falk before Marshall Falk. Yeah, I I'm with you. He just he wasn't Emmett Smith. He wasn't Thurman no, Thomas. Wasn't. So I think that's why they fall on your list. So I agree with you. Okay, I'll swap that hat. <laughs> Live to fight another day. Right. Yeah. So Montana, Roger Craig, Jerry Rice at number three. Number four. Uh, I don't know about this, but here we go. Peyton Manning, Edger and James, Marvin Harrison. And they didn't have like the rings together that you could say, like, oh, that was such look what they did compared to the Cowboys, Bills, and Niners. But on just pure talent, like I mean, Manning was the second best quarterback in the NFL for 18 years. Uh, so I, I think they are incredibly talented. Marvin Harrison's legal issues uh, notwithstanding. Number five, this is where I cheated, the Denver Broncos. John Elway. Terrell Davis, and I went Shannon Sharp here over Rod Smith, which I know people in Joplin are going to egg my house for saying that, but I think Shannon Sharp, one of the best tight ends of all time. Elway, obviously amazing at quarterback. My bonus team, I, I had two, but my one, my one for posterity is the Minnesota Vikings. This team was only like one year, but they were amazing. Randall Cunningham, Robert Smith, and Randy Moss. And then you got Chris Carter in there and Jake Reed if you want to throw them in. But then how about this one? Connor actually mentioned it, which I, I was worried I was going to lose it. On pure talent alone, think about the fact the Steelers had Big Ben, Le'Veon Bell, and Antonio Brown. Two yeah. years ago, you would have said Le'Veon Bell was the best running back in football, and Antonio Brown was the best receiver, and Big Ben is consistently a top five or six quarterback, and they couldn't win a Super Bowl. Thanks, Tom Brady. So any anyone who's missing any major disagreements, you guys can yell them at me now, or you can tweet them at us, at Stick to Football. Leave them in your iTunes review. Just if you're mad about me forgetting your team, don't leave a bad review. Like, still be five stars. <laughs> yeah. Still a good podcast, but you can disagree with us. And, Connor, you Man, might, it's hard. I say you might ha- feel like I did. There were so many times, like, I wanted to get, like, Brady and Moss, but, like, the running back wasn't any good. Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, they've never had great players around them. So, even, like, I thought about Dan Marino, you know, but he never had a good running back. He had two good receivers. So, it's really hard when you put in those those specifics. No, it's really hard. What? So I know you mentioned Marshall Falk. Was there a weakness on the greatest show on turf, or you just oh. thought that's <laughs> no, the I'm one just that? Stupid. Yeah, I think Isaac no, Bruce was the weakness. <laughs> I, I was gonna ask, like I was gonna say Bruce Falk and Warner. Now Warner isn't viewed as those guys you just said. Like Warner's not for whatever yeah. reason viewed as an Aikman, yeah. a Montana Manning, Elway. Like he was never looked at as that guy. But Bruce and Falk were just. And I'll be honest, Absolutely the way absurd. I did this, I wrote down, like, who are the greatest quarterbacks I've ever seen play? And then, like, exactly. okay, who did they have with that's them? That's how I did so, mine. Oh, that's exactly present. how I did mine So as well. I didn't get to the Rams because I wouldn't have put Kurt Warner on that list. Well, and, like, for okay, me. that's a fair response. I, with the SEC, like, I wanted to get Jake Fromm and DeAndre Swift on there. But they lost, like, four receivers yeah. last year. Who do they have yeah, coming they back? they got in? drafted. I'm sure they have a lot of talent at receiver, but... It's not better than Alabama. It's a hard exercise, man. It is it's so hard because you really do have to weigh all three positions equally. And that's why I end up with I mean, I look at this like it's crazy to sit here and look at this list and not have Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes. Right? Oh, yeah. But it's a triplets. It's not who's the best quarterback. So it was a fun exercise. Maybe it next really was. Week we do edge rusher, off ball linebacker, defensive back. I mean, we could do this shit all summer. <laughs> yeah, I can do things like this. Like, this is what I used to do in my free time for fun. 
was like make lists like this. So this is and now we still do it. For yeah, on, on the podcast, <laughs> paid a little bit more money to do it now. All right, guys. Uh, I like I said, I have an interview with Duke Mannyweather. It's a great one. You're going to learn a lot. Uh, Mello and Connor were. I don't know what you guys were. You going to learn lifting. You going to learn today. You going to learn today. So Duke and I are going to talk for about 27 minutes. Then we'll be back to close this puppy out. Stickies, I am excited because I got one of my longest friends in this business, Duke Mannyweather, on the show with us. We've been talking about getting you on here for two years, it feels like, man. So uh, I, number one, apologize that it's taken us this long. But you have something going on called O-Line Masterminds that works in conjunction with some of the, the offensive line coaching that you're doing, dude. I, we wanted to talk to you about it. Thank you for coming on Stick to Football. Oh, man, guys, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, yeah. We have been talking about this, and we finally got it done. Um, you know, no hard feeling. My schedule's been hectic, uh, and I know you guys lead a, a very hectic and heavy schedule. So I'm just glad that this was able to work out, and we're about a month out from O-Line Mastermind. So once again, thanks for having me. I want to talk about your background uh, because I, I think a lot of our listeners are people who want to work in football someday or are at least intrigued by those of us who do. So I want to get there. But first, what is O-Line Masterminds for the people that don't follow you on Twitter? And they should. It's at Big Duke 50. People should be following you because I learn a hell of a lot about O-Line play and technique just from following you on Twitter. But what do you have cooking with this O-Line Masterminds that you guys are going to be doing uh, in Frisco, Texas, just north of Dallas? Absolutely. So O-Line Masterminds is the ultimate offensive line professional development weekend. It's, it's going to start on a Friday, and it'll run until, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon. But what it is is last year we got in a room, and we had 30 professionals in there. We had over 700 starts. We had two All-Pros. We had three Super Bowl rings in there. And what we did is we broke down film. We talked about experiences. We talked about best practices. Uh, we went down on the field and walk and talk through situations. Uh, older guys grabbed younger guys and kind of walked them through the process. We talked about the importance of training the body, the skill, and then also the mind and how that allows you to have a toolbox to be able to duplicate success on the field. Um, you know, it was something that I, I couldn't even imagine how much it would have t- taken off. And last year I didn't have that much time to plan it. How it really came up was, um, let me backtrack here. Back in 2017, training some guys, Saturday mornings, we would kind of have a free-for-all style type deal where we weren't really going to lift weights heavy that day. It was more extended mobility. It was more recovery aspect. But in the process of that, uh, certain veteran guys would throw out names like Dominican Sue or Aaron Donald, and those would turn into 35, 40-minute uh, you know, mastermind session. Uh, this is what I did against him. This doesn't work. This is what he ate. Uh, you got to go back and watch this. And so it got me to thinking. I kind of tucked it away, didn't think anything of it. But I said, man, this is really cool. We learned a lot doing this. I think everybody did. And then I was watching uh, the NFL 100 on NFL Network, and Lane Johnson came on. He said, you know what? He goes, they've got, uh, you know, a lot of talented uh, defensive linemen. I feel like us offensive linemen and right tackles, to all get in the room and figure out how to stop these guys. And I had it recorded, and I went back and I replayed it, and I said, yep, he just, he just said that. So I had worked <laughs> with Lane Johnson in the past, and I called Lane Johnson immediately, and I said, Lane. And I, I put him, like, on speakerphone, and I said, 
hey, you just said this on the NFL Network. He goes, yeah, what you thinking, boss? I said, just what you said. Let's get in the room. I said, and let's plan how the hell to stop all these pass rushes. And so he said, all right. He goes, tell me what you're thinking. I'm in. I'll be there. And so I got with him. We bounced ideas off each other. I got with Jeff Schwartz. I got with a couple of other people. I knew I was going to have my guys, my 20, 22 guys that I uh, had around that I was going to train. I knew they would be interested. I said, okay, it's short notice. This is like probably in May, maybe early May, maybe late April. But, I mean, OTAs were getting ready to be done. Medicare was getting ready to be done. So I didn't have much time. And so I kind of text everybody that I knew, hey, this is what we're planning on doing. If you show up, fine. If not, no hard feelings. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, there's no way it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. You know, people are not going to do that, you know. And then I tell you what, when it was on the line, the guys showed up. I mean, Lane Johnson, Teron Armstead, Mitchell Schwartz, Ron O'Leary, DJ Fluker, uh, just, just to name a few guys. And those guys ended up having pretty damn incredible years uh, last year. Uh, and it was fun to, to know that those guys were in a room and those guys were very uh, important in sharing their process and sharing uh, their experiences and sharing the experiences of either some of their teammates in terms of what they've learned from different guys like Joe Thomas and, you know, what Ron had learned from Jari Evans and Jermaine Bushrod and, and uh, you know, Zach Street from in the past. So it was really cool to get all those type of guys in the room, different personalities, different, uh, you know, levels in terms of, you know, what different schools they came from and how many years they had been in the league and, you know, different skill sets. But at the end of the day, we all came together and shared what they knew. And I'm not a guy that pretends to know everything. I didn't play in the NFL, but I've been fortunate enough to learn from the best, to be able to coach some of the best, to be able to develop some of the best. I continue to want to learn. But I say that to say this, those guys in that room, Nobody will learn more from them than the guys in the arena. And those are the guys that see it each and every Sunday. Those are the guys that put it in the line. So as the, the, the Teddy Roosevelt said, it's not the critic that counts. It's the man in the arena. That's exactly what it was. It was the guys in the arena sharing ideas, picking brains. And I was more of a facilitator. And what I did is kind of gave my approach to what I see as a coach and an evaluator. And then also what I picked up on film and just working with guys. So it was a really cool process. We really uh, planned the hell out of the thing this year. We've got sponsors involved. We've got things set up. So it's really going to be an event. And the, the response and the RSVPs have been incredible. And there's going to be guys that weren't able to attend this year, including some Hall of Famers, but contact me and say, hey, I'm not going to be able to attend. This is what I have going. I talked to my wife. You know, she was all for it, but we've got this going, but I'll be there next year. So just the fact that Hall of Famers picked up the phone, I mean, I've talked to Baselli, I've talked to Mawai, and just hearing from these guys, it's been pretty damn incredible. So one thing I want to ask, because I'm listening to this, and I, you know, as an analyst, I have thoughts. But as a fan, I wonder, like, how do you get guys, like, you get Lane Johnson uh, with the Eagles, what is to stop somebody from the Redskins or the Cowboys or whatever? Like, is there not that competition away from the field where, you know, like, I'm a professional. I want to be the best at my job. Like, I'm not trying to help you. Like, Lane Johnson and Mitchell Schwartz are competing to be the best right tackle in the NFL in our minds. Does that not carry over off the field, or is it just like, let me help you because we're doing the same job? 
Absolutely. Uh, what ends up happening, and first, let's back up. I think I've told you this before when we've talked in person, you know, even when I was with Bleacher Report, offensive line is so different. It doesn't matter, you know, what team you play for. When you get a group of offensive linemen in a room, and that, you know, that's the cliche, the room is the room. It doesn't matter what damn team you go to. The offensive line room is going to be the most unique unit that you will ever see. We are the most unique people that you will ever see in terms of the perfect combination of having an edge, but being overkill, I mean, being even kill, um, to being very, you know, thought-driven and very cognitive in terms of what we do in our approach. Um, you know, the temperament and demeanor of an offensive line is so much different. I mean, just the way we came up is different. Uh, so in terms of getting guys all in a room from different teams, it's one common thing. We want to be the best offensive lineman we could be uh, because what we know is, yes, the team is very much important, but guys are trying to find ways to be the best player they can be. And here's the thing is I know this for a fact, even when I work with, with combine guys, I tell guys this, and I've talked to some GMs and I've talked to some front office, they always ask the question, what would you rather have, all pro Hall of Fame, or Super Bowl? And it's really a trick question because there's really no wrong answer. And one of the most thoughtful answers that I heard from a, a player a couple of years ago, he said, I definitely want a Super Bowl. He goes, but if I'm playing at a Super Bowl, uh, if I'm playing at a Hall of Fame or all-pro level, he goes, I've got a great chance to bring along a lot of my teammates and at that high level. And at that point, our trajectory could be a Super Bowl. And, I mean, there could be some give take to disprove that, you know, there's always going to be. But I thought that was a really unique uh, way to answer that question, that he felt like that if he was on top of his game and being the best offensive lineman that he could be, it gave his, his team a better chance to win. So I think that approach is really, uh, in terms of professional development, uh, and get these guys in a room is that they all want to be the best individual they can be so that they can go back and be one of the best teammates they can be. And, I mean, same thing. When it, we all learn from each other. I mean, we all – I'm always watching and learning from other other people. Uh, there are no secrets anymore in terms of uh, a magic pill or a magic way to do things. And here's the other thing is we all have a philosophy and a, uh, a method to do things um, and a way to coach and some players a way to play. But here's the fact of the matter. No matter what I coach or what I teach or what I, how I develop guys and no matter how somebody else may do it, no matter how one player does it, other player does it, guys are still going to have success and they're still going to have times where they get beat. Guys that I train are going to have success and they're going to have times they get beat. Guys that other people may train are going to have success and they're still going to get beat. So there's not a, a way that's just the definitive way to get things done. There's more than one way to get a cat. And so the more idea information you share, the better. The, the true mark of the elite performer is just the ability to to be able to duplicate it, but then they also, you'll notice, they gather and they want and they urge for any and all information pertaining to their craft. Is this like a direct response to Von Miller and all those guys getting together and doing these these pass rush camps that you see, which I thought was a really cool idea, and I, I don't know the, the timeline if his started first or not, but I, I think as offensive linemen, you got to think, okay, I don't want Von Miller talking to uh, to Khalil Mack, talking to Aaron Donald, talking to Chris Jones. Let those guys figure their shit out on their own. But now they're getting together and, and doing 
a lot of the same things that you guys are doing, like you said, about, you know, trying to be smarter about training and about technique and studying yeah. the top tackle. So is this a response to that, do you think, in the minds of the offensive linemen? Yeah, you know what? That question come up quite a bit. Um, I think uh, Ron Leary was asked that down in Denver. And here's the, uh, the fact of the matter. Ron Miller just finished his third pass rush summit. Um, this will be our second organized um, offensive line summit. Uh, with that being said, as I started off um, the, the podcast, in 2017, we really came up with the idea, but it was nothing formal um, inside of a room. So I, I would say that, you know, is it a response or is it something that just came into fruition? However you want to take it. But definitely, uh, I, I have always felt that we all need to be on the same page in terms of, uh, you know, just the position. Uh, and my ultimate, uh, my ultimate goal has always been to, to try to advance the game and cross, uh, you know, cross paths and bridges that people said couldn't be done. I mean, a lot of people told me that I'll never be able to get guys all to, to, from different teams in a room and be able to talk this thing out that guys are way too competitive for that. I mean, that was a question you asked. And lo and behold, we had it last year. And not only did we have it last year, a lot of those guys went on to do really well. Granted, they were going to do, probably do well beforehand uh, just because just that's who they are. We can't take credit for that. But I, I just think, again, the true mark of elite performer is gathering and the urge to want to know any and all information that would help them. Um, so, you know, the defensive lineman, we can't let them get get too far down ahead, man. They're already athletic as hell. They're already – they're more natural in terms of running off the ball and setting their head. What offensive line, what we do is truly unnatural. You know, uh, we're, we're, we're asked to be aggressive as pass protectors and run blocking. Run blocking is, for, for lack of a better term, run blocking is more natural. You know, pass protection is very much unnatural. It's learned. Everything without offensive line is, is learned and a learned skill. And, you know, not even – not even just doing motions, but doing them correctly and efficiently. So the more work we can get mentally, that translates into physical. And I I think it just it, it sets up a better recipe for success and to be able to duplicate that success down in and down out. I, I, like I said at the top, I wanted to talk about your background because I do think that people are very always interested in how – guys like us get jobs like we have, you know, that are kind of unique. So uh, I know your background, but what are the bullet points? College football player, trainer, um, and I will say this. I don't normally talk about how another guy looks. From when I met you, dude, to now, you have become like, you look like you'd need to be on the cover of People magazine or something. You're you're a goddamn (laughs) sex symbol now. Oh, man, I don't know about that. I'm still ugly, but... You know what? It's been it's been a terrific journey, uh, Matt. It's uh, it's really been humbling and surreal. But it all starts with doing the work and continue to do the work and not being satisfied and then not being discouraged. Um, I played at Division two Humboldt State University. Um, I can curse a lot about what they did yeah, to their program, but yeah. But I mean, for for instance, uh, you know, there's a small Division two school up in Northern California. Uh, played there for four years. Uh, and, you know, my experience there, as I look back on it, um, really kind of shaped me to, to get to where I want to be today. Um, I was in a unique situation where I had a small cup of tea um, at the Arena Football League. And again, I mean, at that point, it was a place that I probably should not have even been. You know, I, I wasn't even, you know, I didn't even possess what it took to, to be able to 
to uh, that season. And I had already had a job that was offered to me at College of the Redwoods Junior College in Northern California. Um, that's about 30 minutes away from Humboldt State University. So um, I wasn't really interested in the job. I had this, this tight dream of that. I was going to go and finish my, uh, you know, carry out my football career, playing arena football and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I really took some time and thought about it. I was like, you know what? I was more of a student of the game when I played. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the fastest. I was strong, and I was very technically sound. Uh, and so I knew those things that I can control, I would control. And that was how hard I trained and then knowing the scheme and knowing the technique. So I did that. I took that to heart. Um, and I was able to even help other players uh, along doing that as I was a player. So I thought about that, and I said, you know what, coaching is the right right chance for me. So I said, you know what, if I have the opportunity, and just so happened the day I was cut, Coach Dave Banducci and Mike Cott from College of the Redwoods called me, and they said, hey, we've still got that run game coordinator and offensive line job available if you want to take it. And I, But they couldn't even finish saying that. I said, yeah. <laughs> and so, I, <laughs> absolutely. So I took the job. Uh, and when I got there, you know, I'm a guy who had just finished playing. Um, and I had never formally coached before, but I had to figure it out. And luckily I was with a veteran staff that kind of gave me some tools on what to do, how to do it. Uh, how to set up uh, different things. And so it was actually a really smooth transition for me in terms of the coaching part. Now, the managing of personalities and, you know, being a role model is what came, uh, you know, slower. You know, I was a 21, 22-year-old man um, called upon to help other young men develop and, you know, kind of figure it out when I hadn't figured it out myself. But I spent a couple of years at College of the Redwoods, and then um, I was pulling double duty because I was also assistant strength and conditioning coach at my alma mater down the road, Humboldt State University, under the legendary Drew Peterson. So my morning from 6 a.m. to about 2 or 3 p.m. would uh, about 8 p.m. I would be at College of the Railroad. And so I was pulling double duty. I did that for three years, and then I was hired at Humboldt State um, as the defensive line coach uh, in 2010, I believe. So from 2010, 11, and 12, I was a D-line coach um, at Humboldt State while also being an assistant strength coach. Um, during that time, I started a website called Beyond the Combine uh, with my buddy Trey Randall, and I said, listen, I said, I want to evaluate offensive line and defensive alignment. I said, but I'm going to do it differently. I said, I want to do it in terms of movement, what can be fixed and what can't be fixed, and I want to really focus on some sleepers. And so I did that. Um and I didn't think anybody was really looking at it, but I, as I started to grow social media and stuff like that, in between, you know, coaching and writing reports, um, I, it caught the eye of a guy named Charles Bentley. Uh, he saw kind of uh, the reports that I was writing and, you know, kind of what went into it. Um, Matt, as you know, when I evaluate right off the offensive lineman, it's very full from the ground up. Like, I don't waste any time or, I mean, I don't waste um uh, any space in terms of like pinning a guy and what I think he can be and what I see and what I don't see. Uh, but those reports uh, started to really manifest. They were, like what I was saying in these reports were like really uh, how guys ended up projecting. So the Charles saw, I guess, some of my work. Um, we had a kind of rapport over text message and uh, emails and things like that. And then I ended up working for him for a couple of years. We went our separate ways. I kind of 
went on a, an entire different path in terms of uh, uh, football. And then I, after that path that I won't really get into with football, um, I I found myself back into what I really love to do, and that was coaching and development. I started off in 2016 again after taking about a two-year hiatus. Um, I think 2014 was the last time I trained anybody. And then 2016, that summer, I trained uh, Jeff Schwartz down in Charlotte, uh, which ended up being his last year. Um, so trained Jeff, kind of posted some videos. Some people saw videos that I posted. And all of a sudden, that next offseason, people were like, hey, I saw you were training again. I want to come train with you. So I heard from Jeremy Parnell, heard from DJ Fluker, heard from Ron Larry. Those were like the first three guys I ended up working with after I came back onto the scene. Pretty good group. Um, and from that, more people started seeing it, and then more people started contacting. And so that kind of grew my training and development business. Uh, during that time, of course, I was doing the NFL 1000 with you, uh, Matt, and we were evaluating and writing up reports on uh, many of the top offensive linemen who ranked, and that was a whole that was an eye-opening experience in terms of what I wanted to put on paper and what uh, viewers actually would read. So that was a learning experience, but it helped me be more concise with a lot of things that I was trying to write and trying to articulate. But uh, I say that to say this: from 2008 to now, there's been many hiccups, there's been many stops, there's been many ups and downs, there's been many highs, many lows. There's been people telling me what I can't do. There's been people, you know, taking shots at me. And I've just said, I've always known what I wanted to do. And that's helped advance the line, the offensive line position. And I am on the road. I am doing it. I'm a part of the Joe Moore Award um, um, subcommittee where I scout and evaluate uh, the top offensive line units in the country for college football. Um, I am a part of the Nike 11 on and the uh, opening. Uh, coaching staff as a lead offensive line coach, so we travel from city to city, working with some of the best high school offensive linemen. And then I've got my business here, which uh, you know really thriving and flourishing because of the investment in people and relationships, uh, which is you know wanting to make guys better. And if I don't have an answer for somebody, I try to you know be transparent, but I try to find that answer and try to put all the pieces together to help guys maximize their career and be the best players that they can be. I love it, man. I love it. And I appreciate your time. You know, I think it's interesting for people to hear these things that, you know, that offensive linemen aren't just like, you know, the big guys who are like sitting around eating while everybody else is, is training. Like they're putting as much work into their career as everyone else, whether it's Tom Brady or Von Miller or, or whomever. So I, I think it's awesome to see. I, I have one final question for you. I saved it for the last yep. part. Um, are you in pro football focus cool now or? Where y'all at? Because when we had Jeff on here, he was like, he just went off on like everybody, like uh, Kean Fahey, Pro Football Focus, and this was this was a while back, but but Jeff wasn't having it. Um, they are what they are. You know what's interesting is last year I spent a week up in uh, Seattle with the, um, you know, at the Seahawks practices. It was right before they played the Chiefs. It just so happened it was a Sunday night football game, and guess who was there? Chris Collinsworth, and so I was able to grab Chris Collinsworth. And, you know, Chris actually gave me some, some really great insight into actual PFL. And, you know, I respect his time and I respect what he had to say. And what he said to me is that, hey, he goes, our grades are, you know, are specifically geared towards certain things. He goes, 
the end-all, be-all. He goes, it's just how they're represented in public, you know, can be confusing. He goes, and nobody really cares to interpret, you know, what they mean. He goes, I get it. He goes, guys, in their room, he goes, those are the grades that matter. He goes, those are the, the grades that people should pay attention to. He goes, but what PFF is, he goes, it's a collection of not only data and analytics, he goes, but we can splice and we can pull up every outside zone and kind of look at tendencies from every outside zone. We can pick up every power play and look up every uh, tendency from the power play. He goes, so it's a search engine for information, and the more information you have in the NFL, the further ahead you're going to be. He goes, as far as what we do in terms of grades, he goes, I think people take and put too much into it in the public opinion. He goes, I understand why they do, because it gives them a way to be able to qualify or quantify if a player is good or not. He goes, and one thing that I always say is I tell, I have to remind my guys that are out there on social media, the way you're defending these grades and the way you're talking to some people, he goes, if I put you in a room with some of these offensive linemen or defensive linemen, you better be able to defend it the same way. He goes, because if not, he goes, they're going to snap your pencil back. So I thought it was really cool. He was pretty transparent about what, how he felt they meant and what the true value of it was. Um, in terms of am, am I cool with PFF, I mean, I'm indifferent. Uh, they have a brand, and their 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 uh, business model isn't to to appease everybody. And you know they can have their play on words and what they want to say and how they want to you know spin off different narratives and stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is how they grade uh, is kind of kept a secret per se, especially uh, when it comes to finishing and you know how stalemates and, and stuff like that are graded. Uh, that's not really what happens in the offensive line room. So. Until they're willing to be completely transparent about their grades and how they grade and what it actually means, it's like, okay, so now you have this grade, now what? What does that mean? Because we know what a 75 or 80% means in an offensive line room. It means that they're looking to replace your ass. So I don't care what they do. I mean, it's their business model. I'm not going to sit here and take shots with them anymore. Um, you know, I know a lot of players don't agree with what they do and how they do it. Uh, I would say almost every offensive lineman I've come across, you know, thinks it's BS, but that's neither here nor there. I don't lose any sleep off of them. Um, they, don't, they don't affect me anyhow. I love it. I love your honesty. That's one of my favorite things about you, man. Uh, again, thank you for your time. People can follow you on Twitter at BigDuke50, and I d definitely recommend it. You will learn so much about offensive line play, about technique, and Duke's also just a cool guy. So, uh, Also, if you're trying to like diet and lose weight, follow him there because I've picked up a lot of tips from you about trying to eat healthier, work out more often. So it's it's really full service, your Twitter account is. Man, it's been a, it's been a, a cool ride and uh since uh, I weighed 340 pounds at one point. <laughs> yeah, no, you, yeah, it's, been, it's been really cool, man. Yeah, no, you, you're, a, you're a hard worker. It definitely shows in everything you're doing, man. So best of luck with O-Line Masterminds. I don't know. I might crash. I'm trying to figure out if I can uh, free up my schedule, but I might be sleeping in your I'll truck you, bed. So I, I'll tell you this, man. We have a limited, limited, limited media access, but you are more than welcome, my man. You are uh, your family. So. All right. Uh, we'll see. We'll see you in July. <laughs> That's probably what's gonna happen. All right, buddy. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you soon, dude. Thanks, Matt.
That is our show for this Friday. We'll be back Monday morning. Send in your Draft on Draft questions on Twitter. Hashtag Draft on Draft. Leave them in an iTunes review. We will have, I promise, a Draft on Draft heavy show uh, on Monday morning. Thanks again to Duke Mannyweather. Thanks to Mello. Thanks to Connor. Make sure you have subscribed. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. We'll talk to you all real soon. Mm-hmm.